You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, Philippians chapter four. Jimmy mentioned uh, last week the book Pilgrim's, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. It looks like that. Um, it is a Christian classic. Outside of the Bible, it sold more uh, copies of that particular book than any other book in, in human history. And I appreciate The Pilgrim's Progress for many different reasons. Uh, but, but one of the things that I appreciate about it is, it is it talks about the journey. It frames the Christian life as a journey. Like you start here and you end up way over there. It's, it's what life with Jesus looks like. It is a journey of, of traveling from there all the way to heaven one day where we'll get to spend forever with Jesus. It's pictured in the Pilgrim's Progress as a celestial city. Um, and, and so the Pilgrim is on, Christian, the Pilgrim, he's on that journey toward the celestial city, toward life with Jesus forever. And one of the things that I appreciate most about the book is it shows just how dangerous and difficult the journey is. J- just how dangerous and difficult it is. It shows that there's far more people who sort of like in some ways kind of start the Christian life than there are who finish the Christian life. It shows how dark and dangerous and difficult the journey with Jesus can be. Let let me just give you a sampling of this. Um, For instance, uh, when when Pilgrim starts his journey, the first thing, if you've read the book, you'll know this. The first thing that happens is he falls into and almost dies in the slough of despond. He's just depressed. It's harder than he once, you know, at first thought it would be. And so he falls into the slew of despond. As soon as he gets out, he meets um, two people. Um, their name is Pliable and Worldly Wisdom. And they try to talk him out of going any further. I mean, it's just another obstacle along the way in the journey with Jesus. And, and then a few, a, a few chapters later, he, he hits the hill of difficulty. It's just a, it's a hard stretch in his life where he's just climbing and climbing. He doesn't think he's gonna be able to get to the top of it. Uh, and then after he gets uh, you know, past the hill of difficulty, he goes down into the valley of humiliation, the, the valley of the shadow of death. And, and there in the valley of humiliation, he meets the devil himself. Once he gets out of the valley of humiliation, he finds himself, uh, the, the, the straight and narrow path that he's on following Jesus, he, he finds himself walking straight through a city called Vanity straight out of the, the Ecclesiastes. It's, it's a city called Vanity. And, uh, and when he's walking through the city, the, the city, Vanity, had a fair going on called Vanity Fair. And, uh, and, and this fair was the end of, of many pilgrims' progress. I mean, th- this is where it ended for a lot of them. As they were seduced into trading Jesus, just, just well, let's stop chasing Jesus and let's trade that. And, and let's, let's chase all these things over here that in the end just aren't gonna matter. And one pilgrim after another falls, falls prey to that. It's just seduced by that. It's there in the city of Vanity that Christian's friend, his name was Faithful. He spoke out against the leaders of the city in Vanity and they ended up killing him. Uh, you've got Mr. Malice, Mr. No Good. Uh, all of these guys end up killing Christian's friends Faithful in the city of Vanity. Um, as soon as he gets out of the city of Vanity, he runs into a, another guy. His name was Mr. Money Love. You can see how that conversation's about to go, right? Just trying to convince Christian, trade Jesus for, for a bigger bank, uh, bank account. Just trade Jesus for a few more things. This is what's really gonna make you satisfied. This is really what's gonna give you uh, what you're wanting in life, uh, Mr. Uh, Money Love. And then uh, one of my favorite little episodes in, in the book is when, um, when Christian, this is the next chapter, when Christian is, he's on the straight and narrow and it's hard. <laughs> 
hard. It's hard staying on the straight and narrow. His feet are hurting. And he looks at this, this little, sh- it, it, it looks like a shortcut to him. It looks like if he just, if he takes this cut, it, it's gonna be a smoother road. It's gonna be an easier road. And surely it's gonna tie back into the main road at some point down in the future. So you can just see all the imagery around that. And he ends up taking this little shortcut. He veers off the straight and narrow like so many of us do so often, right? And while he's veered off, he's on this little shortcut, a giant captures him. You know what the giant's name is? Despair. He's captured by the giant of despair. And the giant of despair takes him back to his house. It's his castle. And you know what the castle's called? Doubt. And there he's just beaten up day after day after day. Now now you can just kind of see the picture here. Part of what the book is showing is just how difficult the the journey with Jesus is. The pilgrim's path is, is hard. That the journey with Jesus is hard. There's dangers everywhere, pitfalls everywhere. And one of the things I love about Paul is that Paul knows that. But Paul is a pastor. But Paul, the, the, guy, the guy who wrote the book of Philippians, this letter to the Philippian church, he has seen people fall into that ditch, into that pitfall. He, he's seen the many dangers that come around our life with Jesus, the journey with Jesus. And in this little section of the letter, in, in Philippians chapter four, Paul just in some ways kind of flashes his pastoral heart to us. He knows that many of us have veered off the path. Some of us even now have been captured by the giant of despair. We're locked up in the castle of doubt. Some of us are in the pitfall. You know, we've been seduced by money love. He knows that we're all over the place in this room. And so often what we need is a pastor like Paul to just shine a light in our life to show us, hey, over there, this is where the path is. That this is how you get back onto the path with Jesus. This is what life with Jesus looks like. This is, this, this is the contours of life with Jesus. And this is what Paul is doing in this passage. He's shining a light onto the pilgrim's path and he's showing us, hey, this, this is the path. Make sure you're on it. Follow me on this path. Let's chase Jesus together on this path. And this is how he shines a light on the path. He gives us four commands in these few verses, four commands, and then he gives us a promise. Now just see it all in the context of what Paul's doing though. He's looking at us, knowing that that many of us are in all these different places in the room. We veered off the path. We're all struggling in our own sort of ways. And he's just just saying to us as a good pastor, hey, this is the path to following Jesus. Hear my words, he's saying. Jump on the path with me. Four commands and a promise. Here's command number one. Command number one. You see it in verses two and three. Command number one, Paul's shining a light on the path, the pilgrim's path. He says, be reconciled, be reconciled. So the first sort of verb, the first imperative, the first to do, be be reconciled. Look at verses two and three. He says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to be reconciled in the Lord. To, to agree in the Lord. Yes, verse three. I also ask you, true companion, help these women. Help Euodia, help Syntyche. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, it, it's, it, this little episode for me is so funny. It's like of all the ways to get your name in the Bible, this is not the way you want your name in it, Right? I mean, you've got these two ladies that they're in a big enough feud that's doing enough damage within the context of the church where Paul just has to, I mean, he just, he's writing a letter to this church. Imagine this letter is gonna be publicly read to the church. And in this letter that's gonna be publicly read, he just calls these two ladies out and says, can y'all please, can y'all please move through this? 
Can, can y'all please get to the other side of this grudge that you're holding? Can, can y'all please come together and be reconciled? I mean, th that, is, that is one way to get your name in the Bible. Now, now think about the context of the book of Philippians. It's been 10 years since uh, the, the church in Philippi was planted. T 10 years ago since those first conversions, 10 years ago uh, since the church was planted, the church you know, kind of publicly started, it's been 10 years. And you know what's happened over those 10 years in this church? This is what's happened. The romanticism of planting church has turned into real life. That's what's happened. All the good feelings that we had when we started, it's turned into real life with real people, right? Remaining sin that's still in all of us, right? Remaining sins has broken into the church. And as it's broken into the church, it started to break relationships. People have sinned against one another. They've done the sinning and they've been sinned against. Disappointments have begun to mount, wounds have begun to mount, especially uh, between these two ladies, right? That this is what's happening. And, and these two ladies in particular are probably influential leaders in the church that when, when they feud, now you've got factions that are forming in the context of the church, all this sort of a thing is happening. And, and Paul sees it as a big enough problem. He, he's looking at these two ladies feuding together, sees it as a big enough problem where, where he has to address it. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases uh, verses two and three, in, or verse two in the, in the message. He says it this way. I urge you, Odia, this is just Paul looking at them. I urge you, you Odia and, and Syntyche to iron out your differences and to make up. God doesn't want his children holding grudges. And this is what's happening within this church. Now, let me just pause. I wanna make a couple of comments about people problems in the context of a church. People problems in the context of a church. Here's, here's the first thought on people problems. People problems are in every church. You, if you have in your mind, I'm going to go to a church and not have people problems, good luck. Let me know if you find that church. How about that? Right? It's just, it's not going to happen. Now think about the New Testament. The Philippian church is probably the best church in the New Testament. I, and a lot of times we have like romantic ideas of, I want to be in a New Testament church. Here's you a New Testament church, probably the best of them. And you've got two gals who are in the octagon together, right? I mean, th this is life in a church. It, it's what life in a church looks like. And, and I, I say this every probably six months or so, in some ways just to set our expectations. But, but I love to do this. Just look around across the room for a minute and just look at all, I mean, just get some faces it, it, kind of in your, in your view. Just look around and, and see the faces around you. Don't they look so nice? I mean, they look like such kind people, right? But, but I want you to hear this. That those are the very people that if you stay here long enough are going to hurt you so deeply, are gonna stab you in the back, are gonna wound you. They're the very people who are gonna do that. Now, why is that? It's because remaining sin is still in them. And by the way, you're gonna do that. Now, why are you gonna do that to people? Because remaining sin is still in you. That, that, that's the reason, right? And, and it's not that we shouldn't be grieved at that. We should be grieved at that. We shouldn't be pleased at that. But, but at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised by it, should we? R remaining sin is still in all of us. If that hasn't happened to you yet, if you haven't found yourself in Cruddy Valley down there where, where Euodia and, and Syntyche are with other people in our church family, here is the only reason that that has not happened yet. You don't know us well enough or you haven't known us long enough. 
But if you know us well enough and you know us long enough, that this is where we're all going to find ourselves at some point. We shouldn't be pleased by it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. Remaining sin is still in all of us in the room. So people problems are in every church. Second thought on this is that people problems require movement toward the problem. Not, not away from it, but toward the problem. I just wonder so often, this isn't a fail-proof method. Things can still go in a really difficult and hard way. But I just wonder often, of all the conflicts that are gonna happen in any particular church family, I wonder how many would have been solved really quickly and would be in the rearview mirror in that church's life had the two people who had a problem instantly moved toward one another as opposed to away from one another. You know? I just wonder how often the relational hangups that we have would have been solved relatively easy and quickly, takes humility and grace, but, but would have been solved right up front had we have moved toward that person as opposed to away from that person. You know, I, I think there's a couple of problems that we instantly get into when it comes to like relational conflict. Uh, and there's, and by the way, relational conflict is hard. And just honestly, most of us are really poor at it. I mean, one of the things the Lord's been showing me is how poor I can be at it too. And it's hard in a lot of ways. I think a couple of the problems, I think just to be aware of, is that anytime that you disagree with someone, there is a tendency in our hearts to demonize that person. When we disagree, when we have a problem with them, we instantly turn to demonizing them. Um, in a lot of ways, I, this is one of the ways you can tell if you have a problem with someone, you oftentimes squash them into a one-dimensional person. So, so it works like this. If they've lied to you, here's what they now are to you. They are a liar. See how there's no depth to that? That they're just squashed down into like a one-dimensional person. This is what they are. This is all they are. They are a liar. Now, you don't treat yourself that way, do you? How many times do you think you've lied in your life? Wouldn't that be a, would that not be a scary number to know how many times you've stretched the truth, only given half of it in this moment to kind of shade it toward your, your kind of way and what you're wanting? I mean, we've all lied a lot, haven't we? And if you pay attention, we probably still do it more than we would like, right? But I doubt that when you think about yourself, that you think about yourself this way. I am a liar. That's just kind of what I am. I doubt you think about yourself that way. Now, why is that? Because you, you see yourself with depth and, depth and complexity. There's dimension to your life. When you think about the moments that you've lied, you, you think like this. Well, but it was in this situation and this was kind of going on and this was the circumstances. You, you give depth and dimension to that, right? But, but as soon as we start to disagree with someone, get at odds with someone, we have a way of flattening them out and this is just now what they are. But I love what Paul does in this passage. He won't let them keep one another in the one-dimensional box. He, he won't do that. He won't let them demonize one another. He, he calls their attention upward. In, in verse two, he says, agree, but not just agree, agree in the Lord. He's, he's directing their gaze up and above this relational conflict all the way up into Jesus. And, and then at the end of verse three, he, said, he just reminds them, hey, do, do y'all know this? Your, your names are written in the book of life. I mean, that, that can be a really helpful thing to know in the midst of relational conflict. This person is a Christian that Jesus loves. Like God's actually at work in them doing some things right now. I mean, that, that's a really good thing because we have a, we have a, a way of flattening them out and, and there's no way Jesus could be at work in their life if this is going on. It's probably not true. As a general rule, I think this is true. The more we obsess over the Jesus we can see in people rather than the Jesus we can't see in people, the more willing we are to move toward our relational problems with them. 
That the more we're, we're obsessing over and seeing, okay, I can see Jesus at work there. I can see Jesus at work here, rather than I can't see Jesus at work in any place in their life. That the more we're willing to look at the, the Jesus we can see in them, the more willing we are to, to, to move toward them and to, to try to resolve relational conflict. And, and here's another problem that I think we have when it comes to relational conflict. So often, gosh, and I've just seen this play out a billion times. So often, rather than moving toward the person that we have a problem with, we tend to move toward others and then tell them about the problem we have with that person. Now just put that over your own life for a minute. That this is how we often work when it comes to relational problems. Rather than moving toward the person we have a problem with, we move toward others and tell others about the person that we have a problem with. So, so our, our anger stews, we begin to slash the person's character. And now here's the thing, that's called something in the Bible. That's called gossip in the Bible. That's called slander in the Bible. That's called sowing discord in the Bible. Uh, this week I was reading something and, and as I was reading it, it asked the, this question. Do you see yourself as a threat to the unity of your church? And really before it even let you, let you answer the question, it just jumped to, to its answer, you should. And I think that's so true. That, that I think it's a healthy thing to see ourselves as a threat to the unity of, of our church family. And anytime that we start to feel rubs and we start to feel problems with people and, and we start to back up from them, go to other people and tell them about the problem we have with this person, we are in that moment a threat to the unity. We are in that moment sowing the very discord that we see in this particular church. So I, I, wanna, I wanna just take a, a moment to allow you to apply this. Can you sense like right now in your life any relational rubs, any relational rifts? And I'm thinking in particular with people in our church, this is the context of Philippians 4, in particular with people inside the church, can, can you sense where relational rifts are, where, where you have problems with people? When you think about them, you have a way of squashing them down into that one dimensional, this is just what they are. They're nothing else, they're just that. And, and I just wanna encourage you to have the courage to name th that, th 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 those people. Like, like who are those people? Where are those places where you have those sort of relational rifts happening. Now, here comes the next question. What are you doing with that riff? What are you doing with that? Have you backed up from that? Even brought some others in to talk about that? Have you, are you going toward those relational problems? This is the only way a church keeps unity over time. It's for people to all have their hands stacked on when those sort of people problems happen, when those conflicts happen, that we are all gonna be a people who don't just invite other people in so that we can talk about the problem, but we're actually going to, to the people that we have a problem with. Are, are you doing that right now? Are you willing to do that right now? Are, are you asking and just begging the Lord to give you a way into solving that problem? Now, he, well, and let me just encourage you with this too when you're thinking about this. I think, you know, a lot of times relational problems can just be so discouraging because they're so hard. But, but I think this is maybe an encouraging thought to maybe just tack on to the end of that. When you think about gospel forgiveness or like gospel reconciliation, those words have a way of showing the good news of Jesus in very tangible and overt ways. Gospel forgiveness and gospel reconciliation 
they, they can't even happen in the context of a church. We can't even show those qualities about God, forgiveness, reconciliation, until there are relational rifts. Isn't that interesting? We actually need a relational rift in our life if we're gonna show God's heart of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And so in some ways, although it's so difficult and so hard, our, some of our richest opportunities lie in those places where those rifts are happening. And listen, God's heart in those moments is not just that those things would be corrected, right? His heart isn't just breaking and grieved over the rifts and over them being corrected. God's heart is like, man, this is an opportunity for us as a church family to show the world how God operates with his kids, the sort of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation that a, that a dying savior has made possible for us. Now, here's one other thing that you see in verse three. People problems are in every church. People problems require movement toward the problem. And then here's what you see in verse three that I think is so interesting. People problems, according to Paul, are really church-wide problems. People problems are church-wide problems. I, I love what Paul does in verse three. And look at this with me. He, he looks at, at, at a true companion, at, at a faithful friend of his, and he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these ladies, help them. Now, we don't know who the true companion is, but this church obviously did. They knew who Paul was talking about here. And, and Paul is realizing that these two ladies, the division was so deep between them, the distance was so far between them that, that they just, they couldn't bridge the gap themselves. And what they needed was a faithful friend, a mature friend, a godly friend to come beside them to help them. Somebody that would care enough about the unity of the church to say, no, that's not just y'all's problem, but you're in this church family, so it's our problem. So, so we wanna step into this with you and to help mediate that to help bring you together, to help pray and encourage y'all to come together. We're gonna to be a person, this true companion, that will sit down with you two, Euodia and Syntyche, and maybe we'll just read Philippians chapter two together. And we'll just, we'll just see and think on the humble servanthood of Jesus. And we'll just be reminded that, that Jesus in his humility left heaven and, and, and went into a mother's womb. He went into the skin of a newborn baby. He, he descended all the way down into the shameful death on a cross. And, and just maybe it's worth thinking about Jesus' descent all the way down into the, the, the shameful death of the cross. And maybe we'll, we'll have the humility to approach one another and be willing to descend all the way down there with Jesus. People problems are church-wide problems. Now, I, I just wonder how many people in the room this morning Paul would be looking at, and in light of relational rifts that you know about, Paul would be looking at you and he would be writing to you and you would be the true companion. I kind of like that he left it as a, we don't know him. Because I, I think for, for, on a practical level, many of us need to be the true companion. And, and I just wonder where in our life right now, we know the rifts are there. We, we know those little, you know, these two people are at odds. They're just, they're just at war with one another. And God is looking at us and saying, that's not just their problem. That is, that is your problem because they're your brother and sisters. You're in the same family together. And you, by, by nature of being their brother or sister, you get a chance to, to help them, to, to be a bridge builder between them. Would you just stop and think for a moment and just ask the Lord to, I, I just wanna pray right now for us in the room. And I wanna ask the Lord to, to give us wisdom on that. 
to, to even right now be bringing to mind, that the Spirit would be bringing to mind those in our lives that, that we need to be the true companion to help bring them together, to help encourage them, pleading with the Lord with them to, to give some resolution to the relational rifts that they have. Father, would you show us that this morning? Father, would you even now bring to mind those faces and, and the people in our life where those rifts are happening? God, would you help us be a church family who, who feels the ownership of unity in our church, who feels the weight of people problems in our church, who is willing to be those sort of true companions to help bring people together? It's in your good name, amen. And I wanna make one quick comment on verse three. I just, I can't pass this without making this quick comment. Uh, Paul looks at Euodia and Syntyche and they're in a feud, but he says, these women, that they are mature, godly, faithful ladies. And, and these, these ladies have labored beside me in the work of the gospel, in the advance of the gospel. Like these ladies have fought beside me to see the gospel go forth. And, and you know, it, it just, it makes me think when Paul is writing that, that he's probably thinking all the way back about the history of, of their church. 10 years ago, this church started when Lydia, a, a, a rich merchant lady in Philippi uh, was rescued by Jesus. And then the next convert, uh, convert was an enslaved girl. Those were the first two converts that the, plant of, or the church plant of Philippi was planted around. And, and from that point forward, ladies in, in key positions were an integral part of the success of this church plant, of it thriving and being what the Lord would, would have it be. And it just makes me think, um, we are about nine years old, coming up on our ninth birthday in August. And I just wanted to stop and take a moment to acknowledge, we have had faithful ladies from day one of our church plan, from, from, from the first day in the life of Stonegate, who have faithfully labored and fought beside us for the advance of the gospel. And I just wanna look at the ladies in the room and say, thank you for that. You play such a meaningful role in the mission of God moving forward. This church would not be what it's meant to be. At best, we would be surviving. There's no way we would be thriving apart from the faithful labor of our ladies in this church. So for all of us men, can we just take a moment to applaud the faithful work of our ladies? Paul shines a light on the pilgrim's path. He's looking at us and saying, hey, come over here. here here's the path, be reconciled. Living lives as peacemakers. This is what the path of Jesus looks like. It's hard, but this is what the path looks like. And then he says this in verse four, that the path of, of, of the pilgrim looks like enjoying Jesus. Enjoying Jesus. Look at verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, Rejoice. Uh, Paul is in verse four, tying into one of Philippians' major themes, this idea of joy. Um, it is right to say that, that the book of Philippians is the happiest book in the Bible. You, you see that the idea of joy just, I mean, it just kind of seeps out of this book. It's referenced over 20 times in four chapters. And one way to translate uh, Philippians chapter four, verse four would be like this. Be happy in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, be happy in the Lord. Now, if you're here and you're, you're kicking the tires on Jesus, you're investigating Jesus, you're trying to figure out if you're gonna push your life in with Jesus or not, I, I want you to make sure that you're thinking right about joy and what it means to follow Jesus. Because there is a prevailing myth out there that, that, that thinks about Jesus like this, that it's either joy or it's Jesus. So if you want joy, you're gonna have to leave Jesus alone. 
But if, if, if you want Jesus, you're gonna to have to leave your, your it, it's that sort of like either or scenario. And the, pro, only pro, like, the only problem with that is the Bible. That's not the way the Bible talks about life with God. It's not a Jesus or joy, it's Jesus as your joy. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is an invitation from God to come and get your joy in Jesus. Like as much joy as you want, as much joy as your heart can take to come and get that joy. As a matter of fact, all those innate desires that you have for joy, all those big rumblings in your soul that wants to be happy, those are really just rumblings for Jesus. Those are really just desires for joy. In the Bible, it's not Jesus or joy, it's Jesus as your joy. And it's not just an invitation in the Bible, it is a command in the Bible. That's how serious God is about your joy. He is saying, I'm commanding you to come to me and have your hearts fully satisfied in me. That, that is a pretty kind God that would do that, isn't it? It's a command in the scriptures. And, and if you're following Jesus, Obeying this verse to keep your heart happy in Jesus, obeying this verse is crucial in the Christian life. It is impossible to stay on the pilgrim's path if, you don't, if you're not enjoying Jesus. It's impossible. Enjoying Jesus is crucial to the Christian life. Enjoying Jesus is how we love Jesus. It's how we glorify and show that the worth and value of Jesus. Enjoying Jesus is how we fight against sin. One of my favorite pastors says it this way, sin is what we do when our hearts aren't satisfied in God. And if you wanna fight against sin, the best way to do that is to keep your heart satisfied and finding its joy in Jesus. And you can just apply it to the last point of, of reconciliation and fighting against bitterness. Genuine happiness in Jesus cannot coexist with a grudge holding heart. It just won't do it. If you're happy in Jesus, if you're happy in Jesus, grudges just have a way of dissipating in our lives. So, so if, if, you wanna, if you wanna uproot bitterness and resentment and all those sort of things in your life, the way we do that is by finding our joy in Jesus. And now Paul, he attaches an interesting phrase and an interesting word onto this idea of finding our joy in Jesus. He attaches the word always to it. He doesn't just say rejoice in the Lord or be happy in the Lord sometimes. He says, do it always. Now, how in the world are we supposed to be happy in the Lord always? Now, I think that those three words are the key. It's in the Lord. How can you be happy always? It's an, it's an in the Lord issue. If your happiness is rooted in anything other than Jesus, then your joy is so fickle, so fickle. But on the other hand, when your joy is rooted in the resurrected, sure, steady Jesus, then our joy is indestructible. Then it can endure anything. Now, let me clarify. Paul is not minimizing sadness in the Christian life. There are many things in this fallen world that should make a follower of Jesus really, 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 really sad. But what Paul is saying is that there is a deep, durable enjoyment of Jesus that can endure even life's greatest sadnesses. That's what he's saying that there is a joy in Jesus that can hold together even when your heart is crushed into a thousand pieces. And listen, this isn't theoretical for Paul. Paul's writing this from prison, right? He's writing this chained up because for Jesus' sake. Right? I love how one commentator said it. He said, Paul had a jailhouse joy. He's got a joy that can, that can endure even life's sadnesses like I'm chained in a prison cell somewhere. Right? That, that's the kind of joy that Paul is talking about. Now, then comes the question of how do we enjoy Jesus? How is that possible? How, how do we do that? 
And if I had three words to give a how to the enjoyment of Jesus, here would be the three words I would choose. Read the Bible. Those are the three words. Read the Bible. Psalm 19, seven, the law of the Lord is perfect. The word of God, the precepts of God, the law of the Lord is perfect. And here's what it does, reviving the soul. I doubt anybody came in here this morning thinking like this. My heart right now is just too revived in Jesus. I just, I can't take anything else. I mean, just God's gonna have to shut the spigot of joy off or this is gonna go really bad. I doubt anybody came in thinking like that today. I, I am just making a, a pretty safe assumption that we could all use some reviving this morning. We could all use the Lord to give us some more joy this morning. We could all use some of that this morning. And how do we do that? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Listen to George Mueller. He's one of my favorite guys in church history. Listen to him describe this. He says it this way. He says, we have through the goodness of the Lord been, this is at the end of his life. We have been permitted to enter upon another year. And the minds of many among us will no doubt be occupied with plans for the future and the various fears of our work and service of the Lord. If our lives are spared, we shall be engaged in, in those, the welfare of our families, the prosperity of our businesses, our work and service for Jesus may be considered the most important matters to be attended to. But according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. This is an older man who has lived a faithful Christian life for years. And he's saying, here's the most important matter we need to attend to every day. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. He goes on. I especially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true service is joy in God. But in this way, we shall, uh, but in what way shall we attain to the settled happiness of our soul? Like, how do we enjoy God? How, how do we do that? That's the question he's gonna answer next. How shall we learn to enjoy God? How shall we obtain such an all-sufficient, soul-satisfying portion in him as shall enable us to let go of the things of this world as vain and worthless in comparison? Here's his answer. I answer, he says, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. That's how. If we wanna keep our, our souls happy in the Lord, of all the things we could say, here's the number one thing. Read the Bible. Pour your souls over the Bible and allow Jesus to pour his spirit into you as you do it. Read the Bible, enjoy Jesus. Here's the third thing Paul says about keeping the pilgrim's path, about, about what the pilgrim's path looks like. And these last two are gonna be quick. He says, be gentle, be gentle. You see it in verse five. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone that the Lord is at hand. Now that you might underline that word reasonableness. Um, that word isn't easy to translate. And you see that it isn't easy to translate because a lot of translations translate it differently. Let me just give you a sense of some of the other translations. The NASB, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The NIV, let your gentleness be evident to all. Uh, the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, let your graciousness be known to everyone. You can kind of get the idea there. The, the idea that Paul's getting at is, Part of what it looks like to, to live as a pilgrim, to be on the, the pilgrim's path, is that there should be a felt gentleness in your life. Other people, when they bump into you, that they should feel a sense of gentleness. Now, gentleness in the Bible is no small thing. In Galatians 5, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Timothy 3, gentleness is an elder qualification. And here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, gentleness is how... 
people are to experience pilgrims on the path of following Jesus. Like when people bump into you, this is, Paul's saying, this is what they should feel. They should feel gentleness and a tenderness and a softness with you. And isn't that so contrary to the culture around us? I mean, the culture around us is tense, it's angry, it's trigger happy, it's dog eat dog, it's an eye for an eye sort of a world that we live in. And Paul's saying, but, but not for you, pilgrim. When you're on the path with Jesus, this is what the path looks like. It looks like a gentleness of heart. And you see this modeled by Paul in the preceding chapter, in, in Philippians chapter three, verse 18. Paul is saying one of the hardest things that he says in the letter. He's calling out people who are enemies of the cross, right? In, in Philippians three eighteen, And he says it like this, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, and then he adds this phrase, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross, uh, cross of Christ. Do you see that? Paul is a tough man. I mean, there's no doubt. If you read the New Testament, Paul is a tough guy, but he is also a tender man. He's also a gentle man. When he's saying a hard thing, he doesn't just say it. He says it through tears. He's gentle. One of my favorite pastors, I'll never forget this. I've told this story a few times, but one of my favorite pastors was on a panel one time. And uh, on that panel, uh, one of the other guys that was on the panel was asked a question. He was a young guy, um, really thoughtful, really bright guy. And when he was asked the question, the dude just went on a rant. And I mean, it was this guy's this and that guy's that. And here's the problems and here's this. And I mean, it just went off. And at the end of that, somebody asked uh, the, the, the pastor I'm talking about what he thought about that. And he looked down the way across the panel. I would have loved to have been there in this moment. He looked down the way across the panel, a panel and he looked at the guy who just went on the rant and he said, you know, I've read your stuff for a good while. I've benefited from it. You're obviously a really bright person that, that loves Jesus. There, there's so much to admire and love in what you're doing and even what you're saying. But I felt like all along, there is one thing missing in everything that I've read. And that one thing is tears. And I just wonder how many of us are missing tears. That sort of felt gentleness in our lives. Like even when we're saying hard things, it comes through a felt gentleness. Like, th like through tears, Paul is saying, this is what it looks like to be a pilgrim on the path following Jesus. It means to be gentle. I mean, just imagine if somebody put a list in front of you and they said, uh, they were given, the, the list comes in front of them and they're given the task of, of writing the 10 words that when they think of you, that they're gonna write down on that paper. I just wonder how many of us would have in the 10 words somebody's gonna write about us, just gentleness, that fruit of the spirit, just that there's a felt gentleness in our life. Like we care about people in that sort of a way that we would be gentle with them. Paul says, be gentle. And here's the last thing he says, don't fear, don't fear. You see it in verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now I would like it more if he just said, do not be anxious, but he goes a step further and he says, do not be anxious, do not be fearful, do not worry about, what's the word? Anything. Gosh, that's like one of those all, like in the Greek, you know what that word means? Anything. I mean, that's like one of those all encompassing moments. It says, I, I don't want you to fear. I don't want you to worry about anything. When we worry, here's what we're doing. We imagine the future and we imagine the future in a terrible and scary way. And in this way, I think one way to think about worry is to think of worry or fear as a false prophet. It's, it's foretelling your future 
but it's foretelling it in the worst way imaginable. And it's foretelling your future as if God is not good, as if God is not wise, and as if God is not sovereign. That's what fear and worry are. That's, that's the voice of fear and worry in our life. They're just, they're false prophets. And the sad effect of fear and worry is they kill our joy. They rob our joy. They make us very inward people, self-focused people. And Paul here is inviting us. He says, every time you feel fear in your life, turn, turn that fear into prayer. Like t- take that fear that you, you feel and, and turn that into, into prayer. Like pray those, ask the Lord, bring your supplications to God. Like with thanksgiving, bring those supplications. That's the word for intercession. Like when you're, when you're worried about people in your life, bring those supplications to God. When you have things going on in your life, men, men, bring those requests to God. Turn all of those fears into prayers to your father who who cares for you and who loves you. And then he says in verse seven, here's the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Who in here couldn't use more of that? That the peace of God that does that. I've been listening to an old song a lot here lately. It's just kind of on one of my little playlists that I just, I've listened to it a bunch. And here's the first verse of it. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Will you just go ahead and bow your head? And I just want to give us a chance to, let's just put that into practice this morning. I want to give you a moment to sit before the Lord and just to pay attention to your heart like where your heart has a way of going, what your mind has a way of just instantly gravitating toward and thinking about. That, that's alerting us to our fears in life, our worries in life, our anxieties in life. And rather than stewing on those fears, those anxieties, What would it look like right now for you to take those fears to your good dad, to your father, and to pray those to him? Just right now where you are, wherever those fears are in your life, those anxieties, those worries, I'm so thankful we get to end this portion of our service by taking communion. The truth is that staying on the pilgrim's path is impossible apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus' continued work in our life, apart from the good news of Jesus. It's just impossible. 
So we get to finish by being reminded that Jesus descended to earth, but his descent didn't stop there. It, it took him all the way down to the cross where his body was broken on our behalf, where his blood was shed on our behalf to cover our sin, to make a way to God doable. That this is Jesus, our savior, who is beckoning us now to, to come and join him on the path. So may we be reminded this morning of his broken body and his spilled blood. May, may we be reminded that everything we need is gonna be found in that dying savior who is risen from the dead, resurrected, steady, sure, and strong. May we be reminded of that. And, and before you take communion this morning, let me encourage you on this. If you haven't taken Jesus, take Jesus this morning. We've got a prayer table, one on each side of the room. And if you need to meet Jesus, if you need to push your life in with Jesus, turning from your sin and throwing your life upon Jesus this morning, if you need to be rescued by Jesus, see those guys at the prayer table. They would love to pray with you this morning and to begin that journey. But it's also for those who are in right relationship with Jesus. So this morning, if there's anything to repent of, if there's any, if there's any places in your life where relational rifts are there, and this morning, God is just inviting you to repent. If you've put distance between yourself and another, he's just inviting you to repent and begin the process of moving toward them. He's inviting you to find your joy in him, to be gentle, to turn your fears into prayers. So, so God, would you show us those areas in our heart where we are keeping, we're just withholding from you. We're, we're, keeping, we're keeping them back from you. And God, would you give us the courage to be open-hearted people this morning to you? So after you have, have done some work with the Lord, you are welcome to come up. We've got two tables in the front, a table in the back. You're welcome to come up, dip the bread in the juice. And we just get to enjoy Jesus together in that way. So Father, would you come now and minister to us? It's in your good name we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.